This morning we are uh, continuing on the road to the cross. Uh, Last week we started our preparation for Easter, our focus on the cross. Easter really is fundamentally about the cross. Our, Our faith really revolves around the cross. The message of the cross is the gospel. It's the good news for us. But like we said last week, it is a uh, hard message, a painful message, sometimes an ugly message. But it's one that we, we, we've got to look at, got to face, so that we can really understand the beauty of it. I'd like to start again this week by uh, looking at uh, kind of the, the strange macabre symbol that, that a cross really is. Well, let me ask you again. Well, what, what, what if somebody invited you home for lunch after church? As you walked into their home, right in their entryway was this large, illuminated picture of an electric chair or of a guillotine. I mean, that would be a conversation stopper right there. Well, what, what would you say? What would you be feeling? What would be going through your mind? You'd, you'd probably be looking around uncomfortably trying to think of some excuse to give to get out of there as fast as you could. Well, again, the cross is just such a symbol. It's a symbol of death, of pain, of injustice. Over the last uh, 2,000 years, we've gotten so used to seeing it around people's necks or in earrings or in pictures or on churches that uh, we forget how weird that would have been to somebody of the first century. I mean, they knew what a cross was. They knew what it was for. It, it was a, a humiliating, torturous way of killing someone. So when, when they saw a cross, it would have brought disturbing, frightening images to their mind. Well, it should. It is a horror. It, 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 like I said, it is a humiliating, painful degrading way to die. And for us to hold a cross up as a symbol of our faith should be a a humiliation, a shameful, a a, a sobering reality, a a statement that must not be emptied of its true nature or, or of its true impact. Every time we see a cross, we should be humbled by it. But it's also our glory. It was through that humiliation, through that death, that we then find life. That death brought us life. But it's only as we descend into the, to the shameful message of the cross that we can ascend to the glory of the message of life. And, and that's the path that the, the cross forces us to take. If we forget the cross, we're tempted to look at, at our faith as kind of a, I don't know, a, a, a feel-good, uh, positive thinking message. Or, or maybe to, to look at it as a prideful self-improvement philosophy, a, a list of rules that if we follow them, then our, it can bolster our pride and, and make us feel superior to others. But if the message of the cross does anything, it destroys our pride. It shows us God's love. It shows us our need. But it also marks the path for us in life. Last week we uh, looked at the, the sobering reality that those who 
turned on our Lord, those who, who abused him, really are not so different than we are. We talked a little bit about the fact that our own propensity toward selfishness, toward, toward pursuing our own self-interest, would have led us, had we been there, to turn on our Lord or to turn away from him or to turn him over to die. We also talked about the fact that as we look at Jesus and his response to injustice, to to betrayal, we see how different his response is to ours, how unlike him we are in ourselves. Well, this week in the passage we're looking at, uh, these themes continue. Again, we see the the amazing love and strength of our Lord. Again, we see uh, the, the incredible stupidity and cruelty of mankind. But we also see this week how our Lord wants us to respond to this message, what he wants us to see in his crucifixion, what he wants us to get out of it. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke 23, verse 26. Luke 23, 26. Jesus has been betrayed and denied and arrested. He has been abused by the temple guard, uh, framed by the leaders of his country. He has been abused by Herod and his soldiers, by the Roman soldiers. He has been falsely uh, convicted of a crime by the Roman governor. He's been betrayed by, by the people. Now he is being led off to his execution. And again, through it all, we saw his strength, that he remained strong and in control, that he remained loving, gentle, and forgiving. Starting with verse 26, let's keep going. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, this is just about an hour after the the final trial before Pilate. According to Roman law, there was to be no less than 48 hours between the pronouncement of a death sentence and the execution. But as seems so uh, true of of so many of the circumstances around Jesus' death, law and procedure are pretty well ignored. Jesus is led off to his execution immediately. Uh, Typically what they would do is they would have four soldiers that would escort a condemned man. They would wind him through the city so everyone could see the consequences of their behavior. In fact, the the first soldier would usually carry a a pole with a placard on it. On the placard would be the, the, the crimes that this person was convicted of. And that placard would then be stuck on the cross when this person was executed. So everyone would see, this would reinforce that this kind of behavior is not tolerated. Well, in Jesus' case, there were, were no crimes that he was convicted of. He wasn't convicted of anything. So there was nothing to put on the placard. So, so Pilate, probably out of resentment, feeling like he was politically maneuvered, uh, forced, in his, in his thinking, forced to condemn Jesus, he writes on this placard in three languages, this is the king of the Jews. That's what he was convicted of. Pilate really wasn't forced to condemn Jesus. I mean, he could have, had he chosen, had he been willing to risk his own life or political career, he could have done what was right. He could have resisted their demand, but he didn't. And now, kind of in order to, 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 to 
maintain his own self-respect. He's got to look at himself as the victim of their, of their manipulation, of their pressure, of their tactics, rather than seeing who the true victim was, who, the, the, who was truly offended. But anyway, again, according to normal procedure, the condemned man was made to carry the cross beam from, from the cross. And carried all the way through the city up to the place of execution. But Jesus had been beaten so badly, so repeatedly, that he was physically too weak to carry it. Tradition has it that he fell underneath the weight of the, of the cross and he couldn't get up. So one of the soldiers uh, grabs Simon out of the crowd, forces him to carry the cross for Jesus. When a, when a well-armed Roman soldier laid the tip of his spear against your chest and told you to do something, you did it. So poor, hapless Simon, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Bad luck for Simon. And we're told that Simon was from Cyrene. That's a, a, a province in, in northern Africa, modern-day Libya. That's where Simon was from. It was the desire of every Jew to celebrate break the Passover in Jerusalem at least once in their life. Often they would save their entire lives for, for that one chance to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And so Simon was probably a North African Jew who was now come on his way into Jerusalem for that once in his life experience. And then this happens. Again, what luck. Wrong place at the wrong time. I think it's interesting. In Mark's gospel, Mark refers to Simon as the father of Rufus. Now, typically, a person is not identified by their son, but by their own father. So what this suggests is that Rufus was well known by whoever was reading Mark's gospel. We know Mark wrote his gospel while he was in Italy, probably in Rome. It's interesting. Paul's letter to Rome, Romans chapter 16, Paul writes... Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. So you see, Simon's son, Rufus, and Simon's wife, Rufus's mother, are both believers there in Rome. It's one of those kind of cosmic connections you find in, in the Bible. But what I speculate happened was Simon, after he was forced to follow our Lord to his death, watched, listened. He saw what happened, and he became convinced that Jesus was, in fact, the Lamb of God, the Messiah. And he went back and told his wife and children about this. What looked like just bad luck for him turned out to be the greatest thing that ever happened or could happen in his whole life. Where what looked like bad luck turned into his salvation. Again, this is our God. This is how He works. He takes the worst that can happen and makes it into glorious. That's what the part of the message of the cross is. Let's go on. Verse 27. A large number of people followed Him, including women who mourned and wailed for Him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for Me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time has come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. 
For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, this is kind of a strange passage. Only Luke records this for us. But it is key to understanding how our Lord wants us to look at his own crucifixion, to how he wants us to look at what he went through. This is really important. Now, now first of all, realize that these women whom he's speaking to are not the women who had been following him throughout his ministry, ministering to him, involved in his ministry. Those women will show up later in the story. And those women were predominantly Galileans. These women that he's speaking to now are from Jerusalem. He calls them daughters of Jerusalem. They're Judeans. In Jerusalem, there was a, a, a group of pious, godly women who would minister to people who were about to be executed. Often a criminal who was about to be executed was abandoned by all of their family and friends. Or sometimes they were from out in the provinces and there was no one there to mourn their deaths. And these women, who out, of, out of love, out of compassion, would, would, would do what they could to, to comfort these people, to, to offer them maybe drugged wine, to dull their pain, to, to mourn for them openly, affirming their worth, saying that their deaths mattered. So these were, were loving, godly women who ministered to the condemned. These were part of the crowd that was following Jesus. So Jesus turns around to the, these ladies and, and he speaks to them. It's important to realize he doesn't turn on them. He's not lashing out at them. You know, weep for yourselves. Leave me alone. He turns to them to minister to them. Again, we have another window on our Lord's heart. His compassion and love shows us what was on his heart, even at a time like this. Turns to these women out of love and compassion. He he says, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves for your children. See, Jesus is not rebuking them for, uh, for their kindness. In fact, had they said something that was hurtful or offensive, Jesus wouldn't have said anything to them. In Luke's account, Jesus speaks only twice, once to these ladies here and once to the thief on the cross. The rest of his conversation is with his Father in heaven. In John's account, we see that he also spoke to his mother and to John. But Jesus only speaks to those whose heart is soft toward him. By this time, his his mouth is silent toward his persecutors. He only speaks to those whose heart is soft toward him. And I think these these women's gentle, kind love elicits a response from the Lord. causes him to stop and turn and speak to them. And that response, I think, reveals that even at a time like this, what's weighing on our Lord's mind is not his own pain, not the injustice done to him, but the consequence to everyone else of what's going on. He grieves what this means for all of these people. That's what breaks his heart. That's what causes the ache. Humanity is rejecting the Son of God. Humanity is expressing the sinfulness of the human heart and incurring the wrath of the Father. Humanity is showing that we deserve the worst that life can offer. That's why he says, 
what he does, uh, that strange saying at the end of this quote. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? And that's a reference to, to, to all this. I, I don't really understand exactly what that, that phrase is talking about. But what, what I think he's trying to get across is this. If people will act this way in his presence, in the presence of the only innocent person, the total, only totally loving person, if the human heart will turn so bad so quickly against him, how much worse will it be when that rejection of him has time to, to, to play itself out in lives and, and history, when the hearts get harder? You see, just five days before this, Jesus had been welcomed into the city with, with shouts of praise. They were waving palm branches and, 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 and shouting his worship and his glory. But very quickly, people's selfish uh, interests and, and their own personal agendas got frustrated. And when they got frustrated, people turned on him. All of them, every one, turned on him. And he's basically saying if, 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 if the human heart can turn so bad so quickly, well, well, well there's still, uh, the, the wood is still green. How much worse will it be with time and history when the wood dries out and hearts get harder and colder and meaner? See, it breaks his heart to think of what this means to mankind that they reject the Son of God. That's why Jesus talks about these uh, ladies beginning to look at having babies as a curse. Babies are a blessing. Babies are a joy. And for these women, they, they probably couldn't imagine anything better than being blessed with a baby. But as things get bad, and they see their little ones suffer as a result of the sinfulness of man, and it breaks their heart, and they ache knowing that their children are going to suffer, they'll come to, to feel that maybe it would have been better never to have a little one to love. We, uh, I think, see this growing around us. We see it around the world. Historically, globally, this has been the common experience of mankind. Life is hard. It's cruel. We see it in our own, our, our own society. We see it in the mean streets of the city where the violence and abuse that children have to face breaks their mother's hearts. We taste it just a little bit in the, in the abuse that takes place in the hallways of our schools. We see our children suffer because of the sinfulness of others. Well, how much more must mothers in places like Bosnia, as they fear for their little ones and what they're going to have to go through, every day mothers in Calcutta must ache as they see babies starving. You see, everywhere around the world, throughout history, where the gospel has not uh, taken root or where the gospel has been rejected, we see the same thing. Life gets hard, gets ugly, gets harsh. Mothers' hearts break. If you have ever wondered why God hates sin, why He calls on us to abhor what is evil, look at an abused baby. Look at a neglected child, a starving little one, and then ask that question. 
See, Jesus sees the consequences of sin as it plays out, what it really does to people, and it breaks his heart. A life without him is a life of emptiness, of cruelty. And it makes us act cruel toward other people. As we also experience that cruelty in our own lives. And and though Jesus grieves for everyone, for all of us, I think his heart for the little ones and for their mothers is really preeminent. Even during his suffering, beaten, weak as he was, what really was laying on his heart was the condition of mankind, the condition of the lost who are suffering the agony of their lostness. Our condition. And I think that's where we need to go with this passage. We have been looking at, we'll continue to look at, the abuse that was heaped on Jesus, his suffering, his pain, his crucifixion. But Jesus doesn't want us to stop there. He said to these these women, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. He wants the attention to turn to us and our situation, our condition. Unless we turn to Him, our lives will experience nothing but the emptiness and cruelty of a life gutted by sin. We will be cruel and unloving ourselves. And the the hurtfulness of others toward us will crush us or, or leave us kind of hollow behind impenetrable walls of of self-protection. See, this is the future that Jesus sees, and it breaks His heart. And His call to these women, His call to us, is to look at our own situation, to recognize our own fate without Him. Rescue from all of this is why Jesus died. That's why He chose to go through it, to free us from that. And He doesn't want us to waste it. He doesn't want us to waste it either as, as, as an unbeliever who's never come to Him or as believers who never move in to the, to the joy of our salvation, walking with Him, listening to Him. Well, we're going to come back to this in, in a second. But let's, uh, let's move on. Look at the next couple of verses. I think this is, this is amazing. Verse 32, 33. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Now I want to stop there just for a second. In preparing for this sermon, I collected page after page of details of what it's like to be crucified, all these gory details, the pain of, of the nails being driven through the wrists and the heels, the, uh, how the, the weight of the body uh, uh, while someone was hanging on the cross put pressure on the diaphragm so the person could barely breathe, could only breathe by pushing against the nails and, and lifting themselves up to relieve the pressure, how the, how the sun and the, and, and, and the exposure dehydrated all the fluids out of the body, how the, the wood from the, 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 the cross worked its way into the skin. Again, all of these gory details. But what does Luke say? Just one line. There they crucified him. That's it. And no gory details. Now, it's true that somebody back then wouldn't need crucifixion described to them in a lot of detail. They would have seen it. They would have known what it was. 
But I think it's more than that. I, I, I don't think God wants us focused on the gory details, on the physical pain. As, as horrible as that was, the torture, the torment of our Lord physically, that's not where the focus is. In fact, I think we'll see next week that it wasn't the physical abuse that killed him. It was a broken heart. So I had to throw my pages and pages of gory details away. Look again at the character of our Lord and listen to his next words. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Again, where is his focus? What's on his heart? Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they're doing. His concern is for them. His concern is for us. I said last week that nothing tells us more about our God than the cross. Nothing tells us more about our Lord than the cross. Well, this is it. This is what it tells us. It tells us His heart. His heart is always toward us. His heart is always for us. That's what He wants us to see. That's what we must see. But that's what nobody else around Him that day saw, apparently. It says... They divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. The rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Well, then save yourself and us. See, the soldiers aren't paying attention. They're preoccupied with what they're getting out of their gambling for his clothes. The people standing around are, are casually entertained by a spectacle. The leaders are, are justifying themselves to each other. Everyone is mocking him. Again, we see the stupidity and cruelty of mankind. And Jesus says, they don't know what they're doing. That's no excuse. Well, what, what they're doing is just giving full release to what lies in the human heart. Lies in, in all of our hearts. Ignorance is no excuse. Evil is evil. I said no one around him that day uh, saw his heart. Well, that's not exactly true. One did. We're told that one of the criminals who was dying there with Jesus saw. Verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now Matthew tells us that both of these uh, criminals started by throwing insults at Jesus, by, by mocking him. But one of them was watching. One of them was paying attention and listening when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. It must have hit him like a jolt that this guy is for real. He didn't see a man up there railing, furious at, 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 at the circumstances that put him there. 
He saw a man who loved to the end. He saw a man who spoke in love to his father. And his father was God. This one criminal realized that this is, in fact, the Son of God. He responded to what he saw. What this man did is exactly what Jesus is looking for. What he's wanting for everyone that was around him. What he's wanting from us. Jesus said to the women of Jerusalem, Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. You see, what Jesus wants is not horror. As appropriate as that is, as we look at the cross, it horrifies us. What Jesus wants is not weeping and wailing, as appropriate as that is. What Jesus wants is what this guy did. Let's look closely. First of all, this man, perhaps for the first time in his life, feared God. The other criminal cursed God. You know, when life turns against us, when circumstances are out of our control and are frustrating us, what tends to flow out of the human heart is what, is what um, Job's wife recommended to him. Curse God and die. Well, what spills out is rage at God. When it's not going the way that we want it, we pretend our innocence and we rail at God. I realize this other criminal is a human hero. He shows real strength. He is macho. He is unbent and unbroken till the end. Uh, Mark uh, Farmer and I were talking this last week, and he reminded me of some of the writings of Camus, the, the, the nihilistic philosopher, for whom this man is the hero of the story. This man is human fortitude, human strength. He curses God till the end. He's a real man. Now, how sad. How foolish. How pitiful. To, to, to look at things that way. When, when life crashes in on you, don't stiffen your neck. Turn to God. This repentant uh, criminal recognizes reality. God is holy. God deserves our life and our loyalty. God deserves our submission. God is the, uh, the righteous judge. God is to be respected, even feared. And this man looks at himself accurately. He says, we are punished justly. For we're getting what our deeds deserve. He says very clearly, we deserve to die. That is a fact. And it's also true of all of us. We deserve to die. We have defied our Creator. We have rebelled against Him. We have defaced His image. We have harmed others whom He loves deeply. We have resisted him. Essentially, we have, have shaken our fists in his face. Our sins make the sentence of death justified. And in fact, if we were to see ourselves, to see our sins for what they really are, to see what they really do to others, what they really do to the loving heart of God, and to really feel the impact of that, we would pronounce this sentence on ourselves. We would flip the switch at our own executions. The most critical parts of repentance is having our blinders removed so we taste, we see a glimpse 
of our sin for what it is. Our sin is ugly. It is a horror. Our sin put Jesus on the cross. As this man observed, Jesus had done nothing wrong. Our sins put him there. Part of the message of the cross is that each of us, our sins, put the gentle, loving Lamb of God on the cross to die for those sins. See, the horror of the cross is the horror of our sins. Face it. Believe it. But this criminal doesn't just grovel in the misery of that realization. He responds in faith. He turns to Jesus. He says, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is faith. Turning to Jesus in helplessness. This guy doesn't justify himself and try to excuse what he's done all of his life. He doesn't promise if Jesus will just get him off this cross, he'll do better. Now he just turns to Jesus, trusting his goodness, trusting his forgiveness. Realize this is remarkable faith. They're, they're hanging on crosses at the moment. They're both about to die. And still, this man believes in Jesus. He somehow understands that Jesus' ability to save goes beyond death. He knows that Jesus is the King, the Son of God, and Jesus will receive His kingdom. And he throws himself on Jesus' grace to be included in that kingdom. And Jesus' response is wonderful. Jesus' response is is to embrace Him. See, this is it. This is the message of the cross. This is how Jesus wants us to respond to what we're seeing. That's why he wants us to respond to the cross. He wants us to look at ourselves, face the reality of our sin and our need and our helplessness and let that plummet us into despair and there grab the only hope that we have. Jesus' grace, Jesus' love and forgiveness. That's the message of the cross. Jesus died to purchase that forgiveness. And like I said, Jesus' response is wonderful. It's not what we would expect a response to be. He doesn't say, well, I'm sorry, man, you waited too late. You wasted your life. Forget it. Jesus doesn't say, oh, you want cheap grace? You're a criminal, man. You're too sinful. You're too bad. Jesus doesn't say, Your sin put me here. I'm hurting because of what you did. Now you're getting what you deserve. Jesus doesn't even say, I'm sorry. I've got my own pain here. Don't bother me. I can't focus on your need, your pain. What Jesus says, again, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. You are forgiven. You are accepted. You will be with me in paradise. That very day, this criminal would share in in, in the joy, wonder of heaven. That very day, this criminal would share with Jesus the, the, the delight of being in the Father's presence. He wouldn't just come as an observer, kind of staying in the background and watching all this. He would come as a participant. He would share it with the Lord. He would experience it himself. And you see, when we come to Jesus in the same way, he says the same thing to us. 
This very day, this very second, you are forgiven. This very second, you are accepted. And you will share with me in paradise. Now the word paradise is a Persian word for an enclosed garden. It's a synonym for heaven. But it also recalls that original garden, the Garden of Eden, where mankind walked every day in fellowship with the Father. Explored the beauty and wonder of creation with Him. Let Him teach what life was all about, how it was to be lived. And you see, when we turn to Jesus, based on nothing but His death for us, His grace, claiming nothing but His grace, immediately that fellowship with the Father is restored. We walk in newness of life. Not only that, we know that death is not the end. As we pass through death, we have the absolute confidence that when we come out the other side, we will be with our Lord in a more wonderful, immediate way than ever before. We will enjoy the presence of the Father without the, without the effects of sin and without these blind eyes of flesh. We will walk in the garden with Him physically as well as spiritually. You see, this is what our Lord wants us to see. As we continue to look at the cross next week, week after, see what Jesus wants you to see. See yourself. See your sin. See your need. But then see His heart. See His love. And then turn to Him. Enter the garden with Him. Well, let's pray. Lord, we uh, do recoil in horror as we look very closely at the cross. But Lord, help us not to be distracted by our own emotion. Help us not to be distracted by our shame, by our humiliation. Help us to feel it, but then to see your heart. Pray for everyone here, for those who don't know you, that they would see that heart perhaps for the first time and fear you perhaps for the first time and trust you for the first time. Accept your life, your grace that's able to give us life, to give us the ability to love like you do. For those who know you, again, Lord, may we open our eyes. May we let the cross humble us save us from the path that just bolsters our pride and makes us feel superior to anyone else. Break us before you so that we throw ourselves only at your grace, that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that our maturity, our growth in you is what, what gains our acceptance, but to fall back on the message of the cross, to see your heart, how much you love each of us right now. Lord, we want to respond to what we see. We want the kind of faith that that man on the cross next to you had. Lord, open our eyes, remove the blinders, fill our heart with a vision of you, I pray. In your name we pray. Amen.